Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Can I just say, it's so great to see you. Can I just reintroduce, I just jumped into it this morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Uh, it's really good to see you, Octobers. They're right at the back, looking so beautiful. It's good to see you guys. Billy, it's good to see you. Jason, what a legend. It's so good to see Jason. If you haven't seen Jason this morning, please go and greet him, because he is the most positive person that I know. So if you haven't had a good start to your year, Jason will fix that really quickly. But just to introduce myself, my name is Joe. Well, well done, Kevin. And uh, we lead the team that leads uh, Doxedo Hatfield, and we have been on a holiday for the last two weeks, so I can even feel my voice is not used to singing. So if the worship uh, has ruined a bit of a sermon, then that's to the glory of Jesus, and we'll take it as it comes. Uh, but it's really great to have you guys with us. If you're a guest, um, it's awesome, and I really trust that you will find family with us. Uh, we are passionate about seeing God's transforming presence take root in our city. And so every city the doxa is present in, that's what we want to see, that people would be reached for Jesus, but that they would really come into a life-giving relationship and they would see the fact that God has raised them up as city changes. And just before we get into the sermon, just a couple of practical things that I want to mention. Um, our mother's room is really coming along this week. The glass doors will be put in. So once again, well done to all the faithful givers in that. It's so awesome that we can complete that. Sound is going to go in and then the ladies will put in just a bit of the, the uh, ladies' touch, I guess. The men will stand back and make sure that it looks nice. Um, but then our moms will have a space where they can go. And secondly, Taiki mentioned that, yes, we know the parking lot is basically full. That is the kind of issue that you want as a church. So we are working on uh, just the conversation with the guys next door, if we can open up that gate and use some of their space. So if you're praying this week, uh, just pray into that as well. Just pray for divine favor that they would just say, guys, of course, please come and park on our side. We would love that. Um, I see no one's laughing at that because you feel I'm very serious, but it's, it's just lighthearted praying, guys, but not. So really pray. Um, and then lastly, I just want to also say um, that this year is the year that we are most probably going to launch a second service, which will be an evening service. And I'm really excited about that. I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of months we've had just students saying, hey, what time is your evening service? And then I have to explain to them, you know, when you plant a church, you don't plant with everything at the one, you know, in one go. It's not like a tent you just put up quickly. Things have to happen in their time, but we're really trusting that this will be the year that we see that happening. So pray with us, invest with us, serve with us as we build capacity. Uh, we're really excited for what God wants to do. So can I pray for us as you open up your Bible and then we get to get into the Word this morning? Is that all right? Amen. Jody sitting on a high chair. Amen. Thank you, Jody. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you this morning that in your word, God, in the scriptures, we can encounter you so powerfully. And I pray that as we open up to Matthew 5 this morning, that there would be something just deeply, deeply rooted in our hearts of who you are, that we would not walk out of here with an experience, with emotion, but deeper than that, with an encounter with the living God in Jesus Pray that you would just bring calm to every heart. You would just open up every heart to what you want to say. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.
great. Dr. Hadfield, so let's open up to Matthew. That is the first book of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And so we're continuing on in our series that started in the end of last year that we're calling Blessed Beyond Measures. We are looking at the Beatitudes. And so as we said last year, this season, the kind of end of the year, the beginning of the year, the operating word is blessing. People are trying to count their blessings. They're trying to set themselves up for blessing with New Year's resolutions and plans and habits. And everyone is using this term to refer to what the good life probably is all about. And so you will actually see that in this season of the year, end and beginning, hashtag blessed is the most used hashtag on social media. So on Instagram alone, you have 139 million posts at the moment speaking about blessed. I'm blessed in some way. But of course, we know that most of those posts have to do with bodies and cars and homes and holidays. And so the question to us is, what is blessing? What does it mean to be truly blessed? Is it financial? Is it spiritual? Is it emotional? Is it relational? And I think the person that we've decided as a church that we want to go to with that question is, I think, the one that is most well-equipped to answer it, and that is Jesus. So in probably the most famous piece of oratory expression in the history of mankind, Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew 5, and he opens that sermon with this portion that we call the Beatitudes, from the Latin beatus that means blessing. It can actually mean happiness. That's even the, the easier term. So we can easily refer to these, these blessed are, blessed are as the blessed ones who are truly happy, truly blessed. And Jesus opens his sermon to ask that question, what is true blessing? And as we have done every week, before we jump into it, I have to say it again, that friends, it's so crucial that we take note of Jesus' intention with these blessings. So it says that before we get going in Matthew 5, 1, that he saw the crowds gathering around him and he went up on the mountain, but then it says that his disciples came to him. And then it says, and then he began to teach them. So yes, even though the crowds were with an earshot, yes, he was speaking to them as well. His disciples, those who were in relationship with him already, they were the focus. Even the way that the Beatitudes are structured, the first one and the last one, like this hamburger of blessing we've been speaking about, they say that these disciples, those in relationship with God, it says to them, they have, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Not might be if they try hard enough. So the point is, if we look at these Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, as a list of things that you need to do in order to, to garner the blessing of God, you are going to be so tired. Good luck on trying to apply the Beatitudes in that way in your life. No, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, if you are in a relationship with me, this is not what you have to do for me. This is what you have in me. This is what you have as a Christian. If you're a Christ follower this morning, Jesus is not preaching at you in the beginning of 2022. He is preaching over you. He's speaking his blessedness over you. It's good to count our blessings, but it's even better to ask what is true blessedness. -ness. And that's what he says. So let's read it together once again through all the blessings as we get to our sixth one then. Matthew 5 verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then last week, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then this morning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So Jesus, it's very clear, He is going right to the core of human existence this morning. What is it? The heart. And the moment we hear the word heart, I think what most people conjure up is what? Valentine's Day, and it's heart emojis, and it's pure, you know, young holiday love out there somewhere. Or let's be honest, if you're of a certain age like me, it's it's old 80s rock ballads, right? If you think about heart. Come on, guys. What's your favorite heart 80s song? Shut to the heart and you're to blame. Come on, all the, the Bon Jovi fans. You give love a bad... Come on, come on, guys. So we know that heart is in there, right? I remember my first experience of Valentine's Day that I can remember. I was thinking about it. I was in primary school, and I was in an all-boys school, but we had an all-girls school border us. Like, who thought that was a good idea? Just thinking about it. Like, one palisade fence between us. And so on Valentine's, the habit was that the girls would send the boys by name through the elder girls. They would send them these gifts. And so you are praying and you fasting all throughout the holiday, like, Jesus, please, like, send me a gift from a girl. And this one Valentine's Day, these older girls come into her, and I'm sitting there trying to look cool, but on the inside, I'm like, please, Jesus. And then this older girl calls out my name. Someone had sent by name a written note, and with this note, it was a chocolate-covered biscuit in the shape of a heart. Guys, I nearly died right there and went to heaven. I was like, this is the new creation right here. And so... I took this holy object home and I put it in my cupboard, you know, just to cover the glory because it was so beautiful. And then three days later, I wanted to just observe it again, just like bask in its glory. And I opened this cupboard and you know what had happened? Ants. They had eaten holes in my heart, friends, to the very depth of my heart. So that's what we think often. But I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He says the pure in heart, but the point is we often use this word, I think, closer to what Jesus is getting at, because we'll say things like, well, my heart was not in it. So you speak about motivation. We say things like, you know, what's the heart of this issue here? So things of utmost importance, that my heart was broken in that moment, almost with a cricket. Some of you guys had it. So it's speaking of love and of affection. It says my heart this morning was singing for joy or my heart was heavy. So it speaks of those, those really, really deep emotions. Or today I want to just speak from the heart. It speaks of conviction. So heart is not simply, you know, lovey-dovey 80 songs and Valentine's Day. It's actually the very core of our existence. What is the deepest part of who you are? The very thing that you actually, not what you say to people, but the actual convictions of your life, that's your heart. The actual affections of your life that influences your decision making. Jesus says, I'm going after the heart. That's why Proverbs 4, 23, this famous book of wisdom says, guard your what? Your heart above all else. Why? For it is the source of life. My heart determines the direction of my life. But there is this strange aspect of 
being human. I trust that most of us are human here this morning. And there's an aspect of humanness that every single culture, wherever this has been studied, it has been found in every culture and every age and every time, that those who are part of the human race would say in different language and in different expressions that they experience both individually and as a culture that something in the very depth of our hearts feels broken. It feels that there is something wrong. Something has gone in the wrong direction. It's been twisted. It's been hurt. And so everyone expresses this in a different way, but something in the very depth of who we are feels off. And we see it. We read through the pages of history and we see the depth of the brokenness of mankind, the horrendous things that we can do to one another. Or we open up the pages of the newspaper and we see and we're angry at politics or the business sector. We're angry at what's happening in education and we see that brokenness. And then the worst moment happens when we see it in the mirror. When I realize there's something that I've done, something that I've bent up, no one knows about this. I keep it secret, but there's something in my heart that I deeply sense is wrong. That's why so many years later, this one phrase from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was this famous Russian novelist who survived the, the death camps of Joseph Stalin. A man who has every reason to say, you over there, humanity, these other people, they are broken. I'm a victim. And listen to what he says. He says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were only necessary for us to separate them from us. But he says, no, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We all wrestle with this. Wherever you go, there is a sense in people's hearts, collectively and individually, of guilt and shame, and pain. You know, guilt is this idea that I have done wrong. I've transgressed even my own standards, even those things that I said I would never have. And I walk around with guilt. But shame is even worse because guilt is that I have done wrong, but shame is that I am wrong. There's something in me that's, that's filthy, that's insufficient. And what does that lead to? It leads to pain. Because of this brokenness in the heart of mankind that always repeats itself, in every city, in every culture, we cause pain to ourselves and to others. So instead of a pure heart, mankind keeps expressing in every age that there is something as much good as we do, as much as we work together in this progression and this technology and this help, as much of that as there is, it almost feels like we're constantly overwhelmed collectively with this idea that, man, there is something opposite to the purity of heart. There is impure, there's evil, there's false in our worst moments we confronted with it. What will mankind do? And that is why it is such good news when Jesus steps onto the pages of history. And I think there's a beautiful moment that we often miss. As he's gaining traction, he's doing all these miracles, people start flocking around him for political reasons. He's going to stamp out the Romans. He's going to get the Jewish people back on board. And so they flock around him for that reason. But listen to what Jesus says. Here's God stepping into human form. And he says in verse 25 of John 2, but Jesus didn't trust them. Why? Because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature. Why? For he knew what was in each person's heart. 
Guys, think about this for a moment. Who can better know you and I than not only the God who is above all things, I believe, and has created all things, who is, who is behind the movement of all things, but that very same God who then steps into the human experience, who steps into the dust and the muck of human life and experiences excitement and pain and death and disappointment and hope and hunger, can anyone understand you better than Jesus? He knows your heart better than you know yourself. And here's the beautiful thing. Here we don't see a God who comes to say, because of what I see in your heart, I come to condemn, I come to cut down, I come to cast out. No, here is the God who from the very first page in Jesus says, I come to confront the depth of the darkness that you hide at times, that you catch a glimpse of in the mirror. I come to confront it with grace, with truth, with love and forgiveness and redemption and healing. That is the God who steps into the situation that I experience in my heart. And he says, I don't come to change your behavior. I come to address the heart of mankind. And that's why Jesus says, verse 8, he says what? Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart. Just a quick question. Why didn't he say, blessed are the good in heart or the holy in heart or the loving in heart? Why pure? We don't use that word often. And the reason is Jewish people at that point, Jesus speaking to them mostly, they have this theme of the pure and the impure. Over, over centuries of Jewish history, God had called these people, a bunch of pagan sun worshipers, he'd called them into a relationship with him where he commits themselves, you know, he commits him to them and they are committed to him at times. But he says, I've committed myself to you. And in that space, he gives them these laws. And some of these laws are meant to separate them from the pagan cultures around them. Some of these laws are, yes, meant to teach a very, very ancient culture. Friends, we often forget how ancient the Old Testament time is. Do you realize that Jesus is closer to you than he is to David in the Old Testament? It's an ancient time. And he has to teach these people about his character. You can't give them an audible, you know, Kindle book that they can just listen to. No, he has to teach them through rhythm and through ritual. But yes, some of those laws are meant to show the people in time that as much ritual and as much religion and as much practice and as much repetition that you have, you will never address the depth of the issue, which is what? The heart. You will keep on running into the same issue. God, I, I do what I'm called to do, but there's something that remains unchanged. Yes, you can force behavior on the outside. You can forcefully get someone to do something for a while with gritted teeth, they'll do it, but you cannot transform the heart. The impurity and the purity is always there. And can I just say, friends, I think so many of us today so many people in our city, they walk around with that sense of impurity. They walk around with that sense of, of shame and pain and guilt. Don't be fooled by success. Don't be fooled by career or money or status. People walk around with a deep sense of unspoken impurity, of guilt. Maybe for you this morning, maybe, 
You were sexually assaulted when you were younger. And to this day, you say, God, I wrestle with the fact that I don't feel pure. I feel filthy. I feel insufficient. Maybe you came from a very poor and uneducated background. And the last 10 years of your life, you've been grafting and working and studying to show yourself different from your background. And yet you walk around in every conversation. You're waiting to be found out as someone who is not worthy like the ones around you. You know, this breakaway that we just had with the other campus pastors in Twane, one of them told me, one of our campus pastors, that he grew up in a house where both of his parents were full-blown alcoholics. And he said he saw some of the most horrendous things during his time growing up. He said he would come home from school and both of his parents would just be passed out naked on their bed, just abandon him and his siblings to their own ways. And he said he walked around for so many years before becoming a Christian with this deep sense of, is this who I am destined to be? Guilt, insufficiency, impurity. And so what do we do? What do people do when we encounter that? Whether you're secular, atheist, agnostic, Christian, doesn't matter. What do people do? They try and fix it. I, I sense this brokenness, but I can fix it. So let's fix it from the outside in. So what do I do? I move to a new city every now and then into a new job so that I can have a fresh start because this time it'll be different. Or you know what? I, I study as, as hard as I can to prove my parents wrong, to prove that teacher wrong, to prove the voice in my heart wrong. I go into debt, mountains of debt so that I can wear and drive and live in something that shows me I'm not insufficient. I jump into bed with someone sexually so that I can see if I can address the sense of unworthiness that I walk around with. But here's the issue. Here's the issue for our city and for us maybe this morning. Every single thing that you do from the outside in, you know what's going to happen. Andy Stanley, pastor in America, famously put it this way. He said, when you get yourself exactly the way you want yourself, you still won't be happy with yourself. Isn't that true? The moment you get yourself exactly where you want yourself, here's the promise, you still won't be happy with yourself. Because the outside in never addresses the, the heart issue, the core issue, the inside. Guess what? You can use money, sex, status, relationship, career. You can use those things. You can try and address. Do you know that you can even use religion? You can use religion from the outside in to try and address it. You know, when I was younger, I really struggled with just kind of a loose sexual ethic. So much shame in my heart before becoming a Christian with that. Struggled with it. And I remember once, I was not a Christian yet, but this church came to our all-boys school, and this, they had the service, I guess, for us. And at the end, the whole, you know, the whole thrust of the service was so harsh. It was judgmental, and it was God who was disappointed in the brokenness that you have in your life. And they were focusing on this issue of sexual sin, and so they said, here is the commitment. Maybe you've experienced this. And they said, we are going to make a purity pledge as men. Maybe you've had this in, in a space as a younger person. And, and they gave out these rings. And so the commitment was this. You are not going to have sex or any sexual relations before you are married. And so as a sign of that commitment, you would wear this ring. Now, is it a good thing 
to say that if I am in relationship with God and I've had the revelation of a God who comes to redeem me with His work on the cross, who's, who's lavished me with His love and His grace and His truth, and He has come to break me out of the power of sin and death and Satan, to then say, God, will you come and mature me? God, will you come and change the habits of my old life? God, there are certain commitments that I want to make within the space of relationship. Is that a good thing? Oh, yes. But do you know what happens when someone who's not a Christian is told to make a commitment of habit without a change of heart? You know what happens? Guilt. Shame. Because I'm trying to go with an old heart and embrace new habits. And the first time and not the last time that you fall and you stumble and you sin and you struggle, you know what you do with that? You don't go into the light. You take it back because now I'm this holy person, this pure person. I'm not supposed to struggle with these things. And it drives you deeper into the darkness. It doesn't change. Outside change, even religious ritual can never change the heart. You know, over this holiday... <laughs> It was so illustrated so powerfully. I read Eric Metaxas' book, The Biography of Martin Luther. Man, so brilliant. And one of the core themes, if you know who Martin Luther was, he was one of the spearhead figures of the Reformation 500 years ago in the Western church. And in this book, it shows that one of the themes that he so wrestled with was exactly this. How can I ever experience peace and grace and wholeness in my heart when I'm trying my very best, I'm clawing in religion, and it never works? You know, he was on his way to become a lawyer, but he said the atmosphere at that stage of the medieval church, where the church and the state was basically one thing, he said the atmosphere in the 1500s had become such in Europe that the church in its message and its thrust was one of judgment, that God is deeply disappointed in you. And he's always on the edge of bringing condemnation and hell upon you. And unless you can give and unless you can repent and unless you can confess and unless you can keep on the straight and narrow, that will always hang over your head. So out of sheer fear for his life, Martin Luther became a monk instead of becoming a lawyer. And I'll leave it to you, which is the better of those two. But he became, um, this is the joke, um, he became a monk. And so he says goodbye to relationships and to society. And he goes into this cloistered life. And they have to wake up at two o'clock every morning. And every day is just chanting and praying and singing the Psalms and washing and working and confessing your sin in the confession booth for hours at a time trying to rack your brain. What's that one thing that I've missed so that the, that the God who judges will not judge me? And he's climbing the mountain of religion. And every time he gets to a peak, it's just higher. It's never there. In fact, you would think in this moment, man, this is a moment for the church to bring the message, the good news of Jesus who pays for it all on the cross. But what had happened to the Western church at that point? It had become so fat with corruption and hatred, so fat with money, hunger, that it built a system to basically oppress those people. So think about this. He said, at one stage, there was this whole system that had been developed by the Roman Catholic Church at that stage that was about merit. So you gain certain merits as you do, and you lose merits as you struggle. And the issue is that if you die with a big deficit of merit, which was the case for almost everyone, you would spend years, hundreds, thousands, millions of years in purgatory 
between heaven and earth where you would be punished to rid you of that. And so what happens? The church develops this whole system where they say, you know what? Some Christians are so holy, like St. Paul, that he dies not with a deficit of merit, but with an excess of merit. He's an overachiever as a Christian. And so all the excess merits are in heaven, in what's called the treasury of merit, and the church can access that treasury for money. And if you pay, and if you serve, and if you pray, and if you chant, and if you confess, we can gift you with some of those merits. We can shave off yours in purgatory. We can cleanse you of even future sin. And they take it even further. They say, guess what? You know, there are people, your loved ones, your deceased mother, your brother that died from the plague, he's in purgatory right now suffering. But do you know that if you give, you can shave off time? Why would you not do that? What kind of a heartless person would keep money for themselves if they can help those suffering right now? And so you would go to Mass at shaving something off. You would confess at shaving something off. In fact, at one stage, the church had developed this crazy idea that relics, these holy, so-called holy objects that they had obtained, if you can just observe them, come into church and touch one of them, come into the vicinity of one of them, see one of them, it would shave off time and sin and brokenness in your life. The, only the church that was close to Martin Luther, I'm not speaking about the whole of Europe even, just this one church, Listen to what they claimed, among other things that they had in their possession. They had a twig from the burning bush that God met Moses in. They had thorns from the actual crown of Jesus. They had the thumb of Jesus' grandmother. They had a piece of bread from the Last Supper. And the ultimate, they had an actual feather from an angel's wing. And so more than 19,000 holy relics just in that one church had been collected. And people with no access to the Bible, no access to the word for themselves, they are forced to come here. And listen to what it says. It says, by 1520, there were 19,013 relics in their collection, just as one church. And it had been carefully calculated that those who visit these relics on the day appointed and you made the contribution financially that was required, they were able to shorten their time in purgatory or the time of a loved one by nearly 2 million years. Or to be exact, it was 1.902 million, 202,270 days. Isn't that a bargain? <laughs> what was it? It was a system of guilt. You were never free. You were never in grace. You were always impure. You were always insufficient. And that is why it blows my mind. Martin Luther, at the age of 33, he's been a monk for more than 10 years of his life, and he's sitting in the tower of the Black Cloister in Wittenberg, and he is studying the book of Romans. He has access to the Bible as a monk, and he reads these famous words for the millionth time in his life. Romans 1.17, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Not faith in what I can do, but faith in what he has done. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And Martin Luther bursts into tears as the Holy Spirit ministers to him 
And in October 31st of 1517, the modern world is never the same again. Because he discovers not rules and regulation and sin and brokenness and condemnation and, and, and you know, ritual. He discovers grace. He discovers a God who comes to take upon himself what I could never address. I could never address. And he finds such a freedom that he's willing to die for that message. And that's why Jesus keeps on coming back to this in his ministry. He says, I do not want to change your behavior. If I can get this whole city to stop having sex with people that they're not married with, Jesus says, I would not be happy with that because it might not at all address the lust that I have in my heart. If I can get every single person to not do a corrupt thing and yet they live in a place of hate and a place of comparison, what has changed? Jesus says, I don't want to come and, you know, modify your behavior. I want to come and heal your heart. I want to come and give you a receptive, beating, new heart from God. And what does Jesus say about that? He says to the Pharisees, who are exactly the opposite, if we can just do enough, if I can just come to Hatfield enough, read the Bible enough, give enough, serve enough. On the outside, they had been doing all these things. Jesus never had a harsh word for one sinner, broken Pharisee, you know, a person who's a tax collector or an outcast or, or a leper. His, his harshest words, he left for the hyper-religious who, who preyed on the people. And listen to what he says to them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, yes, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God makes it clear. I want to address your heart. Why? Because your heart, write this down, is who you are. My heart is who I am. Before we get to habits and before we get to the external, he says, your heart is who you are. The secrecy and the silence of my thoughts, when no one sees me but God and my own mind, he says, that is who you are. Therefore, I want to come and pour my goodness into that place. I don't want to give you just a better Sunday habit. I want to come and address the very depth of that guilt an impurity that you experience on the inside. And from that place will overflow into every area of your life who I am. And what does Jesus say will happen then? He says, and they will see God. They will see God. What does that mean? We're just, you know, I will go to heaven one day and between the babies with the, you know, with the little wings, we'll just sit there on clouds and look at Jesus all day. Is that the picture that the Bible gives? No. It says, see God. In the Old Testament, if a king said to you, I don't want to see you in my presence or come into my presence so that I can see you, it meant favor. The favor of the king would be open to you. If I go to the doctor and I make an appointment and I say, I want to see the doctor, I'm not saying that I want to see him and then leave. I want to find healing and wholeness. If the, the greatest desire in my life is that my father would just see me. 
not optically observe me, but that he would see me. What does it mean? God identity. I want to know that I'm loved for who I am. Jesus is saying not one day you would have this, you know, heavenly experience of God. Yes, the new creation. Yes, the new heavens and the new earth. But today, he says, you will see the king's favor over your life. You will see the great physician's healing of every part of who you are. Today, you will hear the father's voice over your life saying, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. You will see the father. And how does that happen? So beautiful. Jesus says, hey, (laughs) that would have not been ideal. Uh, Jesus says in Romans 10 verse 9, or Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you believe not just with your actions, not just with Sunday attendance, but he says if in the the very depth of that place where you say, God, this, this is the thing. This is where that guilt resides. This is where that hurt resides. He says if in that place, you believe, he says, you will be saved. It's not a system. It's trust in the finished work of Jesus. That scripture that goes with it, Psalm 51, I think it's so beautiful because it doesn't say, God, will you please come and lead me into a clean life? God, please give me clean habits. God, please give me a a clean slate. No, it says, God, come and create in me, a clean heart. And you know what that does, just in closing, is that that new heart, Jesus says that that heart leads to something that we would call a singular affection. When I'm transformed on the inside, it's not that I'm trying to control my Christianity. It's as C.S. Lewis says, my Christianity begins to control me. Because the affection that I have for Jesus begins to influence my affection toward every other thing in my life. My love for Jesus from the Father begins to influence my love for every other thing. My relationship to Jesus begins to affect my relationship to every other thing. And so if there is this this love in my heart called Jesus and His grace and His truth, the one who steps onto the pages of history and He takes upon Himself the very depth of my brokenness, of Satan's sin and death. He takes it upon itself. He breaks it and He raises to new life and He invites me into that space. He says, from that, you will find a love that starts conquering every other thing in your life. A love so great that a love for money and a love for status and a sufficient need that I have. God, if not for this job, I have nothing. If not for this marriage, I am nothing. God, if not this breakthrough, I have nothing. God says that love will start conquering every single area of your life. So can I just encourage you today? You say, but so what then? Can I just so simply encourage you in 2022, before you get to the habits, can we just say, God, today I'm just asking that you would bring me to the heart. Anything that does not start in the heart, it will not last. In fact, it will lead you to more guilt, to more pain, to more shame. 
She will come to church and smile, but on the inside, you are dying. I even want to ask, just as we think about it, we always speak about those key discipleship rhythms, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. You know what? None of that has changed. But in this year, maybe instead of opening up the Bible and just saying, I'm just getting this done, maybe just say, God, I open up the Word today, and I'm asking that you would speak to my heart. God, as I pray, the Spirit of God, I'm not praying to get a list through to heaven somewhere, but the God who is in me, I pray that the Spirit would just speak and minister to my heart. God, when I come to church, even in this very moment here, you would not feel that you're just going through the motions, but you would just ask God every time we gather in community group, every time we rise to worship, every time we come and we gather as people, that you would just say, God, what are you saying to my heart? Can I pray for you this morning? I want to pray this over you. Romans 5 verse 5 says, this hope, this Jesus, it says it won't disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And so tomorrow morning, when you step into your work, if you have your faith in Christ, that hope, that love, it's with you. When you are on your knees as a parent, that love is with you. When you are having to make a decision as to what next, God, know this, that his love is with you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray this morning for hearts that maybe feel heavy, that feel burdened, that feel insufficient, that feel guilty, that feel full of shame. I pray that they would, through faith in Jesus, the invitation not to have new habits and just some sprinklings of religion, but that they would experience the life-giving love of a God who comes to heal them and redeem them and restore them. God, may every bit of guilt and shame be smashed on the rocks of grace this morning. Just as we have our eyes closed, before I started preaching this morning, I just felt that I wanted to create just a moment. And I, I had this on my heart that there are people that, that as you stepped into the service, you were ready to try again. Just once again, God, I'm going to give it my best. Just once again, I'm going to make it work. But I sense that God was saying to you, I want you to sit in grace and receive my love as it's poured out for you. So I'm going to ask us to do almost the reverse of what we would sometimes do in a moment like this. Can I ask everyone just to stand for a moment? Just keep your eyes closed as you do that. And whether you are a Christian, but you've been walking around with such guilt, such a sense of insufficiency, the Father is disappointed. Jesus is rejecting me. I'm not enough. I'm not sufficient. Or whether you this morning realize, man, I've tried religion. I've tried money. I've tried sex. I've tried status. I've tried work. I've tried career. But I've never had my heart impacted by the living God. Instead of you standing strong saying, I'm going to try again, I want you actually to go and sit today.
I want you to go and sit right where you are. Whether you're a Christian here this morning and you say, God, I just want to receive again afresh just the grace of a God who is sufficient for me. Just grab a seat. Or this morning, if you are not a Christian, you say, I want to receive the goodness of a God who comes not to judge, but to heal. Just sit down. I want to pray for every person just seated. If you're standing, don't stress that I think that you, you have it all figured out. Guys, we are all on the journey. But can I ask all of us just to join together? We want to pray for every person seated today in the place of surrender, saying, God, I receive your grace. So let's pray. Jesus, I want to just minister in this moment, this tender and quiet moment. I pray that the Holy Spirit, like Romans 5 said, would just pour his love directly into the heart of every person sitting here. Come and clean out this morning guilt. Come and wash shame. Come and redeem pain, God. Come and take them off the treadmill of religion and performance. God, may you just show them today that they are not condemned because Jesus has done a finished work on the cross. And we hold on to you in faith. Thank you that you are a good father. Thank you that you are a healing God. Thank you that you are the one that redeems and as they just sit in the grace of Jesus this morning, may they receive strength and hope. We pray that in Jesus' name. Let's all grab our seats.